Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Adam Woodward. I'm Sophie Monks Kaufman. On the show this week, artist Nan Golding sees the future and all the beauty and the bloodshed, and we'll be talking to the director, Laura Pratras. Spielberg comes of age in The Fablemans, and on Film Club, Nan Golding reappears in downtown New York in Betty Gordon's variety. All coming up on Truth and Movies and Little White Lies podcast. So I think we've actually managed so far on the podcast to not get too into like award season discourse, but I think we're going to have to this week because it was Oscar nominations day before yesterday when the episode comes out. Adam, any things that you were kind of pleasantly surprised by? Well, you, you've you've asked the wrong person there, I'm afraid, because I don't I don't tend to generally pay much interest to the Oscars. But I will say, having only just recently uh, caught up with Sarah Polly's Women Talking. I was quite pleased to see her nominated for Best Picture and also Best Adapted Screenplay, although it is a bit baffling and I, I don't really know, there doesn't really seem to be much rhyme or reason to this, but I, I'm not really sure how you can be nominated for those two awards and then not be nominated for Best Director. I think the, the lack of like female representation in the director category is a bit odd, but she's got a good shout, I think, at least at least at one of those. And I think, you know, these awards kind of mean a lot to people who are like invested in them in terms of the prognosticators and I guess like the trades and and people within the industry obviously care a lot and I think if if she wins something and it means she gets to make more films of the caliber of women talking then I'm I'm all for it yeah I mean Sarah Polly is really one of our, our great talents and we haven't had a huge filmography from her so if this kind of leads to loads more being greenlit then you know all praise be the golden statuette of the Oscars but yeah, we also have All the Beauty and the Bloodshed got nominated, which I think some people thought maybe it might be a bit too edgy. Sophie, I imagine that pleased you very much. Well, I, like Adam, I, I found it very difficult to feel any kind of way about the Academy Awards, even though I do rationally recognise that it, it can be a very, very good thing in terms of that filmmaker then being able to make more films. So for me, the sport is not so much the Oscars, but watching other people reacting to the Oscar news. I'm like, wow, look at that. Vibes are kicking off online. People have views, their opinions. I see them. I just don't seem to have any myself. I'm the same, I think. Yeah, I mean, I kind of find them more interesting in terms of what does this say about the current state of Hollywood than like, I mean, there's no notion to me that this is actually the selection of the best films, really, or the best performances. It's pretty arbitrary. But yeah, still devastated that Alice Diop's Saint-Omer wasn't recognised. And yeah, Gina Prince-Blythewood is clearly not happy. She's been tweeting up a storm about the disrespect that black women get. Yeah. 
So The Woman King, which I must admit I haven't seen, I thought when that came out, the, the kind of hype around that film suggested it was going to kind of like sustain that momentum. So it's, I actually find it really interesting that like films which are sort of, you know, whether or not audiences see them, like the, the films that have the kind of critical backing and the sort of, you know, industry backing. I find it interesting how sometimes they just kind of drop off a cliff when it comes to within a few weeks or months of the of the actual ceremonies and like on the flip side of that how suddenly something out of nowhere i mean like coda last year was a good example right but even this year sort of andrea riseborough and that whole bizarre campaign to get her nominated for a film like no one's seen but you know which i guess a few people reviewed quite positively but that i find a really interesting thing like the, i mean it's all just a big game basically isn't it yes and actually layla's point i think is is very astute about it's what it says about contemporary Hollywood. And I think it's very interesting, actually, that All the Beauty and the Bloodshed has been doing so well from its birth at the Venice Film Festival till now. I guess it's that kind of, in the same way that people respond to Ruben Oslin films that pinion the wealthy by being like, ha, 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 we're in on the joke, therefore we can't be responsible. I think it's a similar thing, even though it's such a different type of film with All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. It's like, oh my God, we like totally sympathise with these poor victims of like American injustice. And we, therefore, are the good guys. So I think there's an element of that, like, kind of, in a way, it makes you feel good to root for these plucky underdogs. And so maybe that's, like, part of its appeal to the Academy voters. This is mere prognostication. Yeah, but then it, you get something like she said about um, the Harvey Weinstein investigation. Again, the film I haven't seen. I assume that that would do quite well at this sort of thing in a sort of self-congratulatory we got rid of him. Look at us. We solved the problem. But maybe it was a bit too mm. close to home. A lot of those voters will have worked with Weinstein. I was going to say, yeah, a bit too close to the bone, maybe. But I think Sophie's right. There's a kind of like altruism in Hollywood, which tends to kind of prevail in these situations. And, and you get people wanting to kind of put something on a pedestal, which, you know, in this case is fully deserved. But something that kind of reflects well on the on the voting body, I think, is always in, in with a shout. Yeah, exactly. Like good PR. It's it it's, it's good PR to root for this film. And we would know we put it on our cover. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not surprised that kind of the Fablemans has done so well, because I just think that there is an element of like people wanting to be like, oh, aren't the movies grand? Isn't this the, this incredible business that we're in, that we're providing for the world? Uh, but yeah, we'll get on to whether or not that's any good very shortly. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. The Fablemans is loosely based on Spielberg's childhood. Growing up in post-World War II-era Arizona, a young man, Sammy Fableman, discovers a shattering family secret. The film explores how the power of movies helps us to see the truth about each other and ourselves. So, Adam, like, I think a lot of The Fablemans depends on, like, you have to buy into the myth of Steven Spielberg as being this, you know, great artist, great director. Is that your relationship with him? Well, I don't know that that's a myth. But I see what you mean. I mean, I think you have to kind of be invested to some degree, even though he and, and Tony Kushner, his co-screenwriter on this film, have sort of distanced, ostensibly distanced Spielberg from the characters by kind of calling them the Fablemans and that there are elements of like artistic license in telling his own story. But no, I think it depends really how much you're kind of invested in like latter day Spielberg looking and revisiting at his own career from this perspective. Because I mean, pretty much since Ready Player One, 
has been reflecting, I guess, on his own legacy. I mean, that film is very much like, look at all this stuff I've made and look at how it's being recycled and manipulated and and put into these other contexts. And I think that's very much like an artist kind of grappling with his own legacy. And he is, you know, in, in the sort of twilight of his career. And I think The Fablemans feels like a film that could only be made by someone with the distance from that part of his own life, but also just the, the legacy and the sort of amazing career that he's had like behind him. It is obviously like, a very personal film even though he's kind of changed the, the characters names like if, if you kind of read anything about his childhood and, and and you know anything about like his parents for example i think it's like pretty faithful to to his story and and a lot of the events that happened it ends with this amazing scene which i won't kind of spoil there's a scene where he kind of meets an old hollywood legend and he and spielberg has like told this anecdote hundred times before but kind of seeing it brought to life on screen in the way that it's done is just like I, I, I don't know that really kind of made me believe again in like the power of the movies you know and, and as much as that is a kind of corny cliche thing and I think this this is a film about obviously a, a, a boy falling in love with a hobby basically what starts as a hobby that quickly becomes a, a, a life choice like a career direction falling in love with this art form but it's also I think dealing with the other side of that which is sometimes the isolation that that brings or the difficulty like when you're obsessed about something as as Spielberg is about making movies you know I think it can be quite kind of like alienating and frustrating and there's all these other emotions that come with it like it has an impact a, a little bit on his relationship with like his father who's much more kind of academic and I suppose in, in, in that generation, it would have been very kind of common to sort of follow in the footsteps of one of your parents in that way. But he goes the route set out for him by his mother, who's much more artistic. But yeah, for me, that this, this film is like, it, it's a great coming of age film on its own terms. I mean, take Spielberg out of the equation and just I think the story is, is really captivating. But it also, in, in the context of like Spielberg's career, unlocks so much stuff about his other films. I mean, you kind of watch this and it kind of crystallizes a lot of stuff, I think, that, that he's done in the past and, and, and films that he's made and his preoccupations, his kind of thematic interests. I think, you know, you watch something like Close Encounters and the mothership landing and think about that in the context of like his parents being a computer scientist and a pianist and, and knowing that they had this kind of failure or struggle to communicate and then think about that scene and like the way the the way the kind of humans and the aliens end up like making contact is like for me that was like a proper like mind expanding moment like realizing that and then also you know in temple of doom a lot of monkeys die right i mean that's another (laughs) and another thing that you could probably glean from this film like the the monkey character that his mother adopts is 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 quite a funny and, and again true to life like that actually they did actually have that pet monkey but you can kind of trace back like Spielberg's hatred of monkeys from that. My mum actually really has always said this thing that she thinks that the happiest woman who ever lived must have been Steven Spielberg's mother, because like, how nice that your son becomes Steven Spielberg and what a thing to be proud of. Obviously, it's a bit more complicated than that. In terms of performances for you, there's been some kind of criticism, Sophie, of like casting non-Jewish actors in these roles as his parents. I mean, it's his parents, so it's, it's his prerogative. But what did you make of Michelle Williams and Paul Dano? Well, Michelle Williams is obviously performing a person who is performing in her life. So she's this very larger-than-life theatrical presence who's very mannered. And, you know, this is this is not just Michelle Williams overacting. This is conscious creative choice because her character is trying to put up this facade of being someone who is alive when she's kind of dying inside. So, yeah, so there's like a sound logic behind it. 
But for me, the film just wasn't really anchored enough in its emotional themes for me to really feel for her. Indeed, to feel very much for little Sammy Fableman. And, you know, much like little Sammy Fableman, my relationship with Steven Spielberg has gone from me as a child being like absolutely dazzled. This is the best filmmaker in the world. To now feeling a little bit more like a kind of a bit of a little bit of a more adult disillusionment. You know, I've put him on a pedestal and he doesn't belong there. And I've got a bit more of a conflicted relationship now with his films. Yeah, in- including this one, which just for all its metatextual intrigue in terms of the light it sheds on both his life and the films he's made. Just for me, emotionally, that it didn't really land in a way that I was really, really hoping that it would. I don't know. How do, how do you feel, host Leila Latif? I kind of came in assuming that it would be a little bit sentimental to me, this kind of tradition ever since Roma of these filmmakers kind of telling their own coming of age stories and then throwing in a bit of, oh, wait, the movie's grand. I think I was expecting Empire of Light and I actually enjoyed it a lot more than that. I kind of, yeah, I couldn't really resist it in many ways. Like there's something so sincerely inspiring, I suppose, for the journey of like this young Jewish you sort of winced when you Aaron. said sincerely inspiring. Like, oh my God, was yeah. I really inspired? I, I was. I know, I know, my cold black heart melted. But yeah, I, I I kind of couldn't fully resist this idea of like, oh God, you know, a little bit the American dream of like, if you've got talent and you work hard, then someone out of nowhere with, you know, basically no connections can become a 27-year-old who makes Jaws or the guy in 1993 who made both Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. I mean, it is it is a kind of miracle. But I think it's also about how he had to struggle. And I, and I put that in kind of, you know, caveat that with the fact that he was from a quite like fairly prosperous family and, and grew up in kind of quite cosseted sort of suburbia. But it's not like he was just sort of thrown into the movie industry and got the opportunity to make jewel like you know he he sort of earned his stripes coming up through the industry and i think it's just this creative impulse this creative obsession and this drive that he had which kind of is explained in this film that that really kind of got him there and ultimately like his talent and his determination is is what's created spielberg the kind of myth but yeah i mean i get what sophie's saying about maybe the film not always landing emotionally i think there's some scenes definitely that work better in that sense there's a really nice scene with with young sammy and his mother where she is you know he, he he's the oldest of the of the children he's got like younger sisters they're very much kind of like on the on the fringes really of this film but you know, he, he kind of realises before anyone else in the family that there's this inevitable separation about to happen, basically. And his mother is is deeply unhappy and in love with someone else. And he kind of has to deal with that and confronts her basically over it. And I think that's a really beautiful scene. That that was probably the scene that affected me most in the film. And then there's a, there's a really great scene later on where Sammy's kind of made a film to show at his high school prom and there's a there's a sort of classic jock character who has been kind of bullying sammy throughout and he even though sammy shows him in this like amazing heroic light up on screen this this character becomes very uncomfortable with that and and i think that was just a kind of like quite a revealing and intriguing little tidbit of like the you know the relationship between an artist a filmmaker and the people that they choose to put up on screen and how they choose to portray them and and that told me quite quite a lot about spielberg's trajectory and and his skill basically because he's kind of manipulating a situation to paint someone in a super positive light but there's always this sense of like he's kind of doing it to get one over on him in in his own way i just found that quite a kind of clever and as i say intriguing moment 
that was actually one of the most interesting scenes in the film. And I realised I only half answered Layla's question because you asked about Michelle Williams and Paul Dano. And Paul Dano gives almost the opposite type of performance to Michelle Williams. It's incredibly buttoned up, incredibly restrained. And he gets his moment, which is another one of the film's strongest scenes, like right towards the end, which is like quite painful in a way because it's just, you know, that phrase, the father is child of the man. Like it's got to a point where Sammy Fableman is in a much more powerful position in his life than his father and yeah it just the way that that scene unfolds is really exquisitely played I think by Paul Dano you know he doesn't he doesn't oversell what his character has lost or his diminished stature in life he's just there like still rooting for his kid but you just feel that this man who once was you know the father is now just some guy in some pretty anonymous apartment just struggling to get by. That was a really, really strong scene as well because I've been reflecting on sort of the Steven Spielberg effect and, you know, I don't want to put a target on my back or anything by saying anything too dismissive. You know, like, I, I grew up with Steven Spielberg loving Steven Spielberg. I put Jurassic Park on, on my greatest films of all time for the sight and sound ballot. Like, this man is an incredible, incredible filmmaker but I think maybe his films, for me, work the most when there's some kind of, like, fantastical element or, you know, in the case of Schindler's List, there's some kind of extraordinary external factor that is somehow holding up the reasons for his broad strokes type of emotional storytelling. And I think in something that's a bit smaller, like a domestic drama, somehow all those notes don't come together for me, but there are there were still moments in The Fablemans that really, really were, like the two we've just discussed. And also the opening stretch where tiny little Sammy Fableman goes to the cinema for the first time and sees the greatest show on earth and then comes home and then is given a train track. All this stuff that is like Spielberg, you know, working with these huge themes, that's where he knows exactly what he's doing. I just like, I feel that he's not necessarily the guy to go to for like the domestic miniature. Oh, yeah. Mm, I think that's fair. I think that's very fair. (laughs) It would be a spoiler, but yes, for me, top scene is the final one and I think the way that it then plays with the advice that young Sammy Fableman gets in its kind of final shots was just absolutely delightful but yeah we should get some scores on this because we've got some great other movies to get to uh Sophie do you want to go first in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect yeah see I think one of the reasons I was underwhelmed was I came to this like expecting to see another one of my favorite Spielberg films ever so I came in with a big five and then it was a bit of a three for me and then afterwards, I, I, I slumped out with my three. Adam, what about you? I, I was slightly more anticipating this with a bit more scepticism, maybe. I think probably a three. And that jumped to like a four and probably a four in retrospect. And Sophie mentioned that that scene that opens the film with a, with a very young Sammy trying to recreate at home the, the train crash from The Greatest Show on Earth. And the first film I saw at the cinema was Jurassic Park. And, and I distinctly remember going home and playing with my little toy dinosaurs. And not, not that that led to any kind of great love of like filmmaking, but I think there's something there that, that is a universal feeling of that first experience and, and that kind of formative falling in love with the movies. And, and you know, it, yes, it's corny and schmaltzy, but that, that got me. I'm a, I'm a sucker for that stuff. So definitely kind of falls for the... Uh... But hold up, Adam, can I just check for the good of mankind? You're not working on some kind of dino theme park, are you currently? Not currently, no. All right. But I wouldn't rule it out. Okay. Maybe this has rekindled my uh, my my childhood obsession. Okay, Layla, we need eyes on Adam at all times. Okay, yeah. Everybody keep your dinosaur fossils to themselves, lest you extract some DNA and wreak havoc. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, I think actually one of my first was also Jurassic Park, and I remember it came out. You know, back then they used to come out so much longer after they were out in America. So the build for Jurassic Park coming out was so huge. 
And yeah, I think I had quite a similar moment to young Sammy Fableman too. And how far the mighty have fallen. Look at the state of the current blockbuster. Look at the state of the Jurassic Park films. Crikey. Yeah, but I am probably with you, Adam, at about a three, four, four. I think also those last few moments kind of saved it for me. I just found it kind of so irresistible to kind of not be quite inspired. And my dark, cynical heart wanted to feel good. And it did. But yeah, we should move on to a slightly more difficult subject. But before that, Little White Lies editor David Jenkins had the chance to talk to All the Beauty and the Bloodshed's director, Laura Potras. Better yet, he got to talk to her just a couple of hours after she learned of the film's Oscar nomination. So you can enjoy that chat now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The first question I want to ask you is, is more of a general one about your instincts as a nonfiction filmmaker in particular. And when you're making movies, have you sort of developed an instinct for knowing when you have found a subject or a protagonist worthy of a treatment of, of dedicating so much time and energy to? Yeah, I I do feel like having made several films that there is a certain common feeling that, that I have when I know that it's the right film, which doesn't mean that it makes the film easy, but there is a kind of obsession. And I felt that with every film that I've made, just like so drawn into the people I'm documenting. And most of my films have an element of following something happening in real time. And so in a way, the drama, you know, I'm experiencing the drama as I'm making the films and I'm experiencing it through the eyes of the people that I document and who, who trust me. And that the feeling that I have is the feeling that then I try to translate for the audience. So if I'm not feeling all those things, you know, excited, moved, scared, you know, then I have a pro- would have a problem. Yeah. Right? You know, most of my films do look at people who are at some kind of a historical crossroads and they're, they're agents in those moments. They're not bystanders. They're not opinionators. They're like people who are doing something. And that something is in many cases leading to really meaningful change. And so if that's Edward Snowden or Julian Assange or Dr. Riyadh in, in Iraq, they're all people sort of taking action and, and oftentimes taking action against injustice. And so that those are the kind of themes that I keep circling back to over and over and that I find, yeah, it's like, I can't say no to, I'm completely compelled by these narratives. And so if I have those feelings, then I feel, okay, so then my job is, how do I 
translate them. And the, and the answer to that is a long, messy process that takes years and has, you know, lots of highs and lows and lots of doubts. And but ultimately, I often find that like those initial feelings that I have about a project and those instincts align with the finished film, even though the, how you get there is is always hard. For me, at least. So you were talking about this idea of there is kind of this present tense aspect of pretty much all of your films. And in All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, we have footage of Nan Golden's protests against the Sackler family and their involvement in arts institutes around the world. What's the feeling of filming that material in terms of thinking about how it's going to translate into film and knowing whether you have got that drama or that story there? You know, like with any kind of drama that you experience, the truth is you don't know what's going to happen next. That's what drama is, right? What's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? And so with with this film, and we didn't know, you know, if they would be successful. Would the institutions, the museums stop taking money? Would they take down the name? Nan began the film and they documented the early actions and I joined later. And so when I joined, there was... That's when, like, the the guy who was spying on them, they found the, you know, the private investigator. And now they have some guy, up, you know, following Megan, walking her dog and taking photographs. I mean, that's really creepy. And so, like, we were legitimately all really nervous. And so, like, all the kind of feelings of uncertainty that happen when you make films that you don't know where they're going, you know, that, that's what creates, for me, like, the, the pull. There is a certain pull to it. And this film also has a lot of interviews and it goes, you know, it has a lot of things that happened in the past but I try to emphasize that that kind of present tenseness even though if it's something that's in the past so for instance the remarkable footage of David Wanarovich in his apartment as he's battling the sort of controversy that happens when he was collaborating with Nan on this art show, uh, Witnesses Against Our Vanishing. To me, that footage like has such a pulse and a heartbeat because there is somebody in the room filming David as the phones are ringing off the hook and the, you know, the newspapers are full of attacks of him and, and his writing. And again, that's, that has this kind of aliveness that I really search for and in all of my films like um, to bring that forward and for me one of the great thrills about this film was like the discoveries that happened through the archival materials and we worked with an incredible team of archive producers led by Shanti Abergan and also Olivia Streisand and they would find this footage that was just was like time travel you know Provincetown anyway I, I, I keep returning to the films that you get a sense of being there in the moment when the stakes are really high because oftentimes when you talk to people about something that's in the past you you know you feel like it's already been you know it already has a sense of closure do you recall your first encounter with nan's work do you recall the kind of situation around it and your impressions at the time yeah, I mean, I first encountered Nan's work through the, her book, The Ballad of Sexual Dependency. I was living in San Francisco in the late 80s. I was studying filmmaking and I had a roommate. She was a photographer and she moved from Boston and she had a copy of The Ballad of Sexual Dependency, one of the early copies of it. And I just remember being, you know, completely blown away. Like the, this was like a, a different type of visual storytelling I not only was it the photographs themselves incredibly cinematic you know like sense of character and mise-en-scene but then also the, the way that Nan sequences her her photographs that it's is is its own kind of visual storytelling so yeah completely 
blown away. And at the time I was working as a projectionist in San Francisco and I never saw her do this slideshow, but there were people I worked with who worked with Nan when she was coming in with her carousel. So I, I did that live, but but I know people who worked with her and they have great stories. So her, her work has been part of my vocabulary and um, reference points for, for as long as I've been a filmmaker. For me, one of the most remarkable things about the film is Nan's narration and the way she intones it. I mean, it's this remarkable thing in and of itself. It feels key to the emotional power of the film. Could you talk a bit about how you recorded the narration? I totally agree in terms of like the, the, the emotional power of the film. It, it's, it's, I think it's more of a dialogue. The audio was recorded over the course of a year and a half, many, many sit-down interviews. And when I did the very first one, I had the same feeling that you just described, a sense of like, there's something, not just about the word she uses and the eloquence and the sort of, I don't know, the way that she gets to a point, but also like the sound of her voice, the sound of the pauses, all of it was like so evocative emotionally and had all those elements of being in the moment, being present. And that's what I'm always searching for as, as a filmmaker. Like, I, I don't want to hear something that I feel like I've heard before, you know, or that, or that I feel like it's been told before. I want to feel that it feels alive and feels present. And I felt that when I did the very first interview with her and I knew that the quality that she brought to it would resonate with the quality of her photographs. But to put them side by side was going to be really special. And so we did many, many interviews. It's not like we had a script. It was a, it was a dialogue and there were interviews. A lot of my questions, of course, we pulled out. There were a couple sections where she was like, okay, I want to go back, you know, do more interviews or maybe clarify something. But mostly the voiceover was done in dialogue with the man. And we would only focus on one thing at a time. She liked to know what we were talking about. So I'd say, okay, I want to talk about witnesses against our vanishing and David Wanarovich. And so she knew ahead of time. Like, and, and so that allowed us to be like really get into minutia around that history and maybe find new vocabulary to talk about it. I, I think one of the dangers as a filmmaker doing interviews is people have the narrative they, that they've tell, told before and then they repeat the narrative. And if, I don't know why I use this metaphor, but because I'm not a skier, but like if the tracks are already there, you can go to the tracks that, you know, like that have already been laid or like you could go someplace where there are no tracks, you know, and like how how can we go to the place where there, there aren't tracks? That maybe feels a little bit more scary. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Laura. And uh, yeah, congrats again on the nomination and yeah let's fingers crossed for the the victory it's great to be in the uk and and i just want to do a shout out to like the mu museums because it was the uk were the first to take down the to stop taking sector money so yeah. the national portrait gallery and tate they led the way so um yeah All the Beauty in the Bloodshed follows the life of artist Nan Golden and her eventual role in the downfall of the Sackler family, the pharmaceutical dynasty whose name appeared in many of the world's finest art institutions, but was responsible for flooding the American population with Oxycontin and subsequently for the opioid epidemic's unfathomable death toll. I mean, it really is an unfathomable death toll. I think we're at about kind of 600,000 people that are victims of this. It's, it's, it's a very painful film to watch, but I think it's one that you really connected with straight away, Sophie. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And, you know, that was nearly six months ago now at Venice I you know I gave it an A plus in my review for IndieWire uh, subsequently spoke to Nan Golden and Laura Poitras and have hyped it to every single person that's asked me what's a good film that's coming out and then I just had this question oh like have I misremembered how great it is but then I rewatched it last night 
and it was exactly as, as as powerful as I recalled. Yeah, I don't know. It's just like, it's just doing so many things at once on a storytelling level. And yet somehow it is also incredibly coherent emotionally. It, it's got this arc and it's emotional coherence is somehow also enriches storytelling because it's the, the grief that is within it is like a way of paying respect to all the people that have died in the opioid crisis, preventable tragedies, and also to Nan Golden's sister Barbara, to whom the, the film is dedicated. So I think like that's why I think it's such a monumental achievement, the fact that it tells so many stories. You know, It tells the story of Nan Golden, uh, of her childhood in suburbia and how she lived in various queer communities and then came to be an uh, activist for a group called Pain. It also tells the story of the ACT UP protests uh, when people were dying of AIDS in the 1980s. And it, it, it tells the story of the communities that Nan belonged to. It, it tells so many different stories at such an interesting pace. And it also tells the story of the, the rise of the Sackler family and how they made their name in reputable circles by artistic donations. And until recently, lots of art galleries across the world bore their name. But simultaneously, through their company, Purdue Pharma, they distributed OxyContin to America. And they not only distributed it, they marketed it. Poitras finds this advert where you have a doctor being like, guys, you're all worried about taking OxyContin because you fear it's addictive. But don't worry, it isn't. So, you know, the absolute impunity uh, of their behaviour, like the film is full of grief, but also fury. And it really exposes the Sackler family. So it's got all these different elements. And, you know, listening to myself speak, it sounds so busy, but it's somehow seamlessly structured in a way that it all flows beautifully. But then it's also like this fireball at the centre of like grief and anger and also like love, like great love and tenderness for all the people that have died. And Nan herself, as a sort of atlas holding up this world, manages to contain all of these stories, all of these feelings, and she's still here. And that adds this kind of extraordinary emotional power to the film. So, yeah. That's why I think it's just phenomenal. And I think it's worth saying that it's narrated by Nan and her way with words is absolutely astonishing. I mean, even the title comes from something which we won't reveal, but it's just an incredibly beautifully narrated thing, which is less interesting than your insights, but I didn't want to point that out. That's a really good point. And also the other thing I'd be absolutely remiss not to point out is so much of it is founded upon Nan's photography and slideshows. So it's using this very original archive material as well to tell the story. So Nan Golden is is known primarily as a photographer, but her chosen way of exhibiting her work is actually through these slideshows set to music. And that those become these living things and she would never show the same slideshow twice. She would edit it in a slightly different way, move it around, set it to different music. And in a way, this film is like the final form of this constant process of re-editing because it itself is is it's it's not just the slideshow the film but the slideshows are very prominent in it and so you have all these extraordinary works of art within this bigger work of art so there's just so much artistry to it and like her photos are so raw and they just take you back to these people and places that and you get these little glimmers for like a split second as you see them on screen of these people who recur in photos and you're like who are they what became of them so there's just I think there's just so much life force within it but at some point I will have to stop raving about how great it is and and let Adam speak well I I think (laughs) I think you said the phrase preventable tragedies earlier which is like I, I suppose to sort of link it to the Fablemans, that is like the through line of the film, really. And the, the way I think that Nan and, and Laura weave in the, the story of her own family and the preventable tragedies therein is just amazing. And actually, Sophie, I wanted to ask you, seeing the film at Venice, 
with the big audience like you did. I watched this on a kind of link at home. So it was, it was a very different experience. But what was the kind of reaction? What was your reaction when the, the title of the film was kind of revealed or, or put into context in the film? Oh, I just, yeah, like I felt it in my heart. Like the the room didn't gasp or anything, but it is a quiet moment. Mm. But it's certainly a like, it's somehow it's, it's it, it, it just brings everything together in a certain way. Yeah, because it's already a great title, but then you see where it comes from and it just like, it hits even more. Mm. Yeah, not a dry eye in the house. What I observed, it really is, it, it's such a difficult life that she's lived. There's been so many disappointments. She's had to fight so hard for just as respect as an artist to be taken seriously and then to live through all of those people, all of your friends dying in the AIDS crisis and then to have to face a second one within a lifetime. It's, she's dealing with, I think, a kind of an unspeakable level of pain and that that gets channeled into this beautiful art is oh, even more inspiring than the Fablemans, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is inspiring because she she never plays the victim. And this isn't a film where it's like, you know, looking back at a, a great artist's legacy, like someone you may have heard of or someone's photography you might have seen somewhere in a gallery. And, you know, it's it's not just kind of like, oh, this was their life. These were their struggles. It's like it's it's the story of someone who's continually reinvented themselves and found a purpose. And the fact that, she, as Sophie said, she's still out there doing it. I mean, it kind of leaves you reflecting on like what the important things are in life and and, and the world, I guess, more generally. And I, I went to something at the VNA in London recently and they've got like the Sackler Garden still there. Like the name is still there. And, you Do know, they? yeah, yeah. And they go, oh. and they go through the, the various institutions which have kind of now taken the name off and and they kind of it, the film sort of bookended by them doing a uh, protest in 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 momo in new york and it kind of makes you think about those, those institutions and I, 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 just, I just think nan's story aside from like all all of the amazing stuff she's captured in her work and i just think her story is someone who's like continually fought for what she feels is right in the world and the way she's like always maintained that sense of purpose is like the yeah the most inspiring thing about it yeah and coming back as well to Layla you said you know she she narrates it and I think what's continually awe-inspiring is people use the word all killer no filler and they're usually using it wrongly everything she says is like just incredibly piercing and to the point and she's so unsentimental she will say exactly what she wants to say in as few words possible and that's it that's done that's her on the subject and that somehow makes her story all the more powerful because you're not drowning in some kind of like excess interpretation she somehow for all that she's been through for all the loss that she's seen and that she carries within her and she herself like had a near-death experience that was this inciting incident for her starting this activist group you know she was prescribed oxycontin and then became addicted to opioids and then nearly died all this stuff that she personally carries she still has this incredible like whiplash clarity to the way that she sees things and that that is what i find awe inspiring because i think the kind of normal human response to pain is to like languish in it and you almost get lost in it and you kind of can't almost see beyond it like above the parapet of your suffering and she kind of can i'm like that's amazing but also in a way that intensifies the burden because she can kind of she can see the sort of the, the world around her the inciting incidents she can see that like all these people didn't need to die and she can see that this family the way that they've conducted their obscene need for profit that you know they, they have profited from people's deaths and she can make those links and she can make that case and so she, she you know this and I don't want to just be like oh this is all Nan Golden because I think you know Laura Poitras's 
storytelling is, is incredible and also Nan Golden herself says that you know the reason she's even been able to survive even from like childhood has been friendship and community and you know she obviously has cultivated that around her but I think she's the organizing principle behind the film like Laura Poitras has said that so much of her filmmaking has been about just kind of reflect something of who Nan is and how Nan is so I think it's just like that personality that she has and that presence that she has is 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 this kind of a thing that gives the film its presence if if our listeners wanted to find out more about Laura and Nan, perhaps in in the form of an interview mm. in a in a trendy independent <laughs> magazine, where where might where might mm. they go? Oh well, now you you really ask a head scratch. I'm going to need a moment to consider that. But wait, yeah, gee, now that I think about it, I guess uh, Little White Lies magazine, the most recent one. Say, Layla, what's the cover film for that one? Oh, wow, just um, some documentary that. Um got a little bit of Oscar buzz we don't know where from maybe Gwyneth Paltrow and Kate Winslet backed it who knows <laughs> but I mean it's an amazing thing that you got to speak to Nan Golden for the magazine because I think she's she's revealed a lot in this that she's never really spoken about before with you know things about her family things about sex work and you know so she's not doing a huge amount of press so but I was thrilled that you got some one-on-one time with her oh Layla I did but like I was incredibly intimidated. I, I cried before and afterwards. Because just because she is so no bullshit. And it's like, it's not that I think I'm a bullshit person, but like, I've got maybe, there's some killer, but there's certainly a lot of filler. And I'm like, how's that going to go down with that? Na- how's Nan going to react to my filler? Probably not well. Um, so it's quite nerve wracking. I don't know. She's just, I think something that immediately after the interview, I was like, oh, of course. Like to my mind, she's just like a formidable individual. And I, I, I was like almost approaching her like a rock star and the moment I started talking to her and I could feel this like prickliness and guardedness I was like no 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 she's like a very vulnerable person she's a person who's like worried about her image because she you know she's an outsider artist for all intents and purposes he's been marginalized for society for all of her life and you know she herself doesn't feel like a rock star she feels like someone who has to be like quite cautious so yeah we you know we 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 had a decent conversation but immediately afterwards I was like I should have approached that in a totally different way I should have started it by like really kind of showing her that I understand where she's coming from and her work and stuff but it's something that's quite easy to do as a as a consumer of art even though you, you, they're telling a story that reveals how vulnerable they are to you that they, they've kind of done something incredible but yeah like speaking to her I was like no 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 this is <laughs> this is someone whose trust you got you really got to earn and understandably so so yeah it was, it was like I, I still would advise people to read the interview because you know she's she's Nan Golden she gives good answers but I wouldn't say it was my finest hour as an interviewer well, I think even your mid-tier is most people's absolute finest hour mm-hmm. when it comes to interviewing people. No, and it's, a, it's an amazing new issue. And I, I absolutely loved both of your interviews in it. But yeah, let's get some scores on this. I imagine they're going to be pretty good. Adam, do you want to start? Sure. Well, I think maybe a four in anticipation. Uh, I, I wasn't, I got to say, I wasn't as familiar with, with Nan's story Aside from her kind of work, I I, I wasn't really familiar with her her involvement in the um, the kind of OxyContin activism, but big fan of Laura. I mean, ever ever since kind of Citizen Four, her Edward Snowden film, sort of quite quite keenly followed her career. So probably a four, but then yeah, definitely fives in enjoyment and in retrospect. I think this is like not just a brilliant documentary and a brilliant piece of storytelling, but like a really important film that every everyone should see. Sophie, what about you? Is there is there such thing as giving a Something 17 out of five. <laughs> <laughs> Seventeens across the board. No, four. Like, I, I I, like Laura Poitras, but I had her down as sort of almost quite a cerebral director. 
quite a sinewy director. And for me, cinema is at its powerhouse best when it's also got this great emotional power to it. So yeah, I was like absolutely blown away. So then it was for 1717, or if I must, 455. Yeah, I mean, Sophie will know this, but we were kind of working for the same publication at Venice. And we had this very strange thing where we were never in sync. We never liked the same films. And this was one where I have to say, Sophie, I stand corrected. You were completely right. Because yeah, maybe four in retrospect, I knew Nan Golding's work and I was interested in that. Three in enjoyment, I thought at the time watching it, I was clearly just exhausted and tired. And I was like, oh, I think this is all a bit much. And I only kind of, I like the Nan Golding stuff. I'm not so interested interested in other elements. And I was wrong. Five in retrospect. I've rewatched it twice since. It's absolutely incredible. And and I think it's also a very important piece of activism that I think will do a lot of good in the world. And what more can you say about art than that? Next up for Film Club, it's Variety. Christine takes a job selling tickets at a porno theatre near Times Square. Instead of distancing herself from the dark and erotic nature of this milieu, she develops an obsession that begins to consume her life. So, Adam, back in downtown New York, the world of Nan Golden. Nan Golden is also in this film. Is this your first time to uh, Variety? It is, yes. Must admit, this was not a film that's kind of on my radar previously. Or, or it was a film I'd heard of, but but not, yeah, not watched. And yeah, Nan, Nan Golden is very much a sort of more of a kind of background figure, really. And is playing a character called Nan. So I, I assume she was sort of friends with director Betty Gordon. And I imagine they were popping up in each other's work quite a bit around, around the time. But it follows this character, this woman called Christine, who is played by Sandy McLeod, who I don't really think acted in much beyond this, but is like a really, I mean, for what is a, a, a fairly kind of like, lo-fi scuzzy you know new new york story it's like she she just completely radiates like star quality and has a, a, i think a, a great deal of screen presence and it's yeah it's a shame she didn't really go on to do much beyond this but she plays this character who starts working at a adult theater in new york just on the kind of front ticket desk and it follows her initially. She she has funny little verbal sparring sessions with Louis Guzman, who a very young, I think his first ever screen role, Louis Guzman, who 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 kind of manages the the porn theater, and he he's very funny. I mean, make, makes you wonder if this is the reason PTA cast him in Boogie Nights because it, it, the kind of Louis Guzman like pornographic cinematic universe has kind of expanded out from there. But but yeah, he's very funny, and and she becomes fascinated in this older male character who appears every so often at the theatre and shows an interest in her. And then, it, yeah, it just follows this kind of very intriguing story of, of her trying to track him down, essentially, and, and find out who, who this kind of mysterious man is. And we never quite do. It's, it's, it's a very kind of ambiguous film. I think you can kind of read a lot into it. And, it. and it's one of those films that really has like, as I said, wasn't really massively on my radar. So I don't know if it has a reputation beyond kind of my, my, my sort of ignorance, but... It feels like a film which, on the surface, you would think is just a kind of, oh, it's one of those films of the era where it maybe follows a character, but not a lot happens. It's a bit more of a kind of textural thing, but it's actually like, as a, as a kind of piece of like screenwriting, it's a really tight like thriller. I mean, there's shades of like Brian De Palma in there, definitely gave me that kind of vibe. But I love just, first and foremost, I just love how it captures this this bygone era. Um, you know, if you look at look at films from that period, particularly this and and something like Susan Seidelman's 
Smithereens, which again is like this great portrait of like the New York punk scene and, and follows female character. It's it's like, yeah, it, it's just a nice kind of time capsule piece, I suppose. And it, and it takes you back to that era where things weren't necessarily better, but they were maybe more interesting. Yeah, it, it wasn't a film that got a lot of praise at the time, which seems apt given that like so much of what these downtown artists were doing at the time was not being taken seriously. But Sophie, do you think this is actually kind of a underappreciated masterpiece? So actually, I saw it at the cinema in 2017. I just looked it up. It was because um, I saw it at the Barbican and it was a season called The Grime and the Glamour. And it really made a lasting impression on me. It's got this kind of fever dream quality. It's like a little bit heightened. And it also has the kind of like eroticism, slightly fantastical eroticism of like an Anais Nin story. But also, yeah, it totally does have that Brian De Palma thriller element. And it's got almost like that uh, Scorsese's after hours, you know, just someone going on this sort of adventure through the New York street nights. And like, are they ever going to make it back to themselves? Maybe, maybe not. So yeah, I, I really, it is very, very atmospheric. And it was great to see at the cinema because it's beautiful in a really scuzzy way. It's like, ooh, the neon lights of downtown New York. So much of it is just, yeah, either in the streets or in the porn theatre where she works or the the bar where Nan Golden works. I think it's called Tim Pan and that's where she really did work. And so I think some of that stuff that's filmed there is quite, if not verite, then just riffing on the kind of the real dynamic that would happen all the time. On one level, it is just this woman sort of stepping into this other version of herself. And there are these these two, like, pretty incredible scenes where she's got this quite straight-edge boyfriend who's a journalist. And he'll just ask her a normal question. And apropos of this, she'll just describe in vivid detail, like an erotic scenario. You know, one of them features a woman um, making love first to a snake and then a tiger. And all the way, way, he'll just be sort of, like, standing there stony face. And she'll just be, like, getting more and more into it, you know, just really laying on the detail. And in that particular scenario where she's describing having sex with like, this situation where a woman has sex with a tiger he's playing pinball and there's just something about the combination of like a man being told a like fantastical erotic short story uh, and him also just like very focusedly playing pinball that is just like absurdly brilliant and so yeah there'll be like long stretches that are quite dialogue free and that are just observing her living her life in New York but then there'll be you know these kind of like quite surreal exchanges and I think Nan Golden functions within it almost as like the kind of mother superior of the gutter or something like you know she's just there like she's caring she's just you know leaving messages on christine's answer phone being like dude are you okay so yeah it's like yeah it's just like it it, i think it's like quite a fever dream type film and it's yeah it's just very very atmospheric and i think it does have some cult standing like i know like you know it played at the barbican but i know it also plays at, at repertory cinemas in new york sometimes so i think it's like a sort of countercultural gem yeah Countercultural gem. Let's uh, put that on the poster. That kind of <laughs> sums it up so brilliantly. But yeah, before we wrap up, we've got our new thing that we do, which is we're going to end with you guys giving us and the listeners some recommendations that aren't movie related. Uh, so Sophie, do you want to go first? What is the non-movie thing that you would advise people seek out? I mean, it's not cheating, um, but it is movie adjacent in that this is a woman that Adam's already mentioned. He's kind of primarily known for the movies. Sarah Polly's book, Run Towards the Danger. Sarah Polly, who Adam mentioned in connection with her new film, Women Talking. Uh, she's actually also an extremely gifted writer. 
Like this is a collection of six essays and they're all incredibly visceral in different ways. Like the first essay is about her being a child who's just lost her mum who has to wear a like full body brace for her scoliosis. You know, she's got stories about having a high risk pregnancy. She's got stories like her essay about Me Too is like the most interesting and nuanced take I think I've ever read on it in terms of like sort of the way that trauma impacts women and their ability to tell stories and how actually something that's often used uh, against women who are testifying against men men is the fact like oh you like you were really friendly with him afterwards but this kind of unpick unpicks that kind of survival strategy anyway like they're you know they're not all about like visceral bodily things but like three of them are and they're all just really really well written and she's just such a thoughtful writer as well like there are no hot takes in there and in fact like one of the things that's kind of great about this book and she says it in the introduction is is like what happens to you as you go along actually shapes how you remember things so like your perception of events in your past are not static I love that and it's yeah it's just this incredible fluidity that she she brings to the way she tells the story this reflectiveness you feel this yeah like this sense of I think I keep using the word life force and things I really respond to. Like, that's what I responded to so much, you know, the beauty and the bloodshed. Because I think it's one of the hardest things to capture, you know. We want to nail things down. And the greatest artists accept that that's absolutely, truly impossible. And yeah, Run Towards the Danger is, is, is like, it's just got this life force and it's very thoughtful and it's super interesting. And I just read it so fast. So that's what I recommend. I'm, I'm genuinely going to run out the second <laughs> this is over and get that. Adam, what about you? Am I, am I allowed to? Sure. Well, the first one is an exhibition I went to a couple of weeks ago at the Photographer's Gallery in London, which is a retrospective of the British photographer Chris Killip. And he primarily worked in the in the kind of late 70s, early 80s in in the north of England and sort of embedded himself in communities that were sort of on the, on the margins of society, on the fringes of society. And he produces these amazing, like, very stark but very beautiful and very kind of sympathetic portraits of people and that's yeah that's like a very good cheapish exhibition i think it's on for another couple of weeks and then the other thing was i just saw actually like shortly before we started recording anyone who is a fan of the band bikini kill so kathleen kathleen hannah on the on the subject of like punk feminist icons is is one of the founders of that and her other band la tigra are, are going on tour later this year for the first time in i think like 18 years and i believe tickets go on sale on friday so by the time this goes out listeners should be able to purchase them but yeah they're 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 a good a good band so I, i'll be i'll be in the queue trying to get tickets for that god i i love this new feature i feel like i should do some sort of thought experiment where i take up every single recommendation and then like start a blog of channeling my journey of self-discovery through all of these but yeah thank you both very much if you've got thoughts on these films email truth and movies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at lw lies next week it's a bumper episode where we'll be announcing a couple of very exciting new changes and to kick it off two of the biggest and most exciting directors in hollywood will be joining us we'll also be talking about when motherhood proves a nightmare in alice diop's masterful saint Omer, which was robbed in the recent oscar nominations um the renaissance is on in aronofsky's the whale m night Shyamalan is answering a knock at the cabin and the film club a young senegalese woman faces tragedy in osman Samben's 1969 masterpiece black girl god that is what a great week thanks so much for tuning in and if you enjoyed the show please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast truth and movies is hosted by me Leyland Heath and my guests this week were Adam Woodward and Sophie Munts Kaufman the podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.